Hello, my name is Claire, and I will be having a conversation with Patty for the New York City Trans Oral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans-identifying people. It is Saturday, November 9th, 2019, and this is being recorded at the New York Public Library, 42nd Street. Mid Manhattan branch. Hi. Hello, Claire. Hello, Patty. <laughs> Thanks for being here. Of course, of course. I love Midtown Manhattan. <laughs> yeah, what's not so love? Mm -hmm. um, let's begin with um, your name, your age, where you were born. Oh my goodness. Okay. Start with start with age. Great. <laughs> um, my name is Patty Gone. Um, I'm 36 years old. Um, and what was the other one? Where you were born? Where I was born. I was born in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, um, in the early 1980s, um, which yeah ended up being very formative to a lot of things that I still work on, I would say. What was Harrisburg like in the early 1980s? Yeah, I mean, Harrisburg was, and maybe still is, um, a, it's, it's the capital of Pennsylvania, which sometimes people don't know. Um, but yeah, it's there's a kind of large like central Pennsylvania kind of like suburban sprawl like around Harrisburg, um, but it's also kind of the largest city inside of what some people call like Pennsylvania, mm. which is like the vast expanse of Pennsylvania between Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, which are like the liberal poles of Pennsylvania, and then you have this vast swath in the middle that's doing kind of other things. Um, and so, yeah, so I'm from kind of that region of the country. Um, and I would say, yeah, I spent a lot of time with like my grandmother and like at home, and um, one thing that my mom says she'll talk about like, oh, I never like took you and your sister to the pool or we never did these kind of like activities that like she did as a kid. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, mom, that's, that's fine. At this point, I don't, you know, like, um, yeah, because my sister and I would kind of stay home or we'd stay with my grandmother in the summers or whenever my parents were working, um, I would be, I would be there. Um, my dad works in like carpentry stuff. And um, my mom worked for the Navy. And so she was this like civilian employee of the Navy um, from when she was 18, like right out of high school until she retired um, in her kind of like mid, mid 50s. Did she travel a lot for that job? She would travel here and there. I mean, we would never come with her. But yeah, she would like, I don't know, I remember her going to like the Philippines. Or, or Virginia or whatever, you know, like it all kind of over. And it was like dealing with kind of like military systems 
like how how the Navy transports goods around the world. And like it's very wild to me that the Navy has a place in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania, that is like a place where <laughs> so many um, people um, work on these uh, projects, or, or at least they did. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't know what the situation is now. You know, but like that's where she she would drive across the river to work. Um, you know, five days a week for all that time, and and yeah, like that's come up in various like that that my life was kind of or like any kind of like comfort that I did have as a kid like came from like the government. Mm-hmm. You know, like. And even still, like, my parents are, you know, they're not, like, very wealthy, but, like, for being in, from that region, or, like, neither of them having college educations, um, you know, it's like, my mom worked for the Navy for all those years, and, like, that's been kind of, yeah. And, I don't know, that's what I got. Yeah. All questions on that? Um, you said you spent summers with your grandmother. Mm-hmm. Um, was she also in Harrisburg? Yeah. What yeah. were those summers like? Um, it would be a lot of us, my sister and I, hanging out at that house um, and doing a lot of, I would watch lots of television. I would watch Sports Center. I would watch... American Gladiators. I would watch like the old Batman live action, um, and then eventually I would like go down into the basement when I was like in my teens and stuff, and I would just watch MTV like all day long. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like I would just I would have there was this channel called The Box. I don't know if you've heard of it. I mean, it's like long gone at this point. But they would like have these like you'd call in and like request videos, and it was like two dollars to call in and request, and I did that once or twice. Um, But mostly, they would just kind of play these things in between when like no one had requested anything. Um, It would just be like little kind of like fifteen, ten second snippets of all those songs. This would be say from like nineteen ninety five to two thousand. I graduated high school in two thousand one. So, like, that kind of time period. Like, I have, like, an encyclopedic knowledge of pop music from, like, 1995 to 2001. Um, One of my dad's favorite games to do with me is to, like, when I'm home or driving around or whatever, like, is to, like, play, like, name that tune with me. And he'll, like, put on his, like, serious, like, 90s station and just like let it go and and i will be able to you know every once in a while i'll get stumped but like i got all of them <laughs> what was her house like uh, my grandmother. yeah um my grandmother would never she would never put the air conditioning on so it would always be kind of hot um, she would play a lot of solitaire, and her biggest things that she would do was she would um, read Daniel Steele novels or other romance novels, and she would watch soap operas in the afternoon. Her favorites were The Young and the Restless and The Bold and Beautiful. 
And so, yeah, there were times when I would be like, I remember being really young and being like put down for a nap and like being kind of like in the back room, but it was kind of all a ranch house and I wouldn't want to sleep. And I would like walk to the little like partition and like, so she still couldn't see me. And I would like stand and like through the slats, like stand and like watch, um, you know, the young and the restless, um, <laughs> as she was sitting there. And then eventually she kind of just like gave in and like let me watch with her. So there was a number of years where like I would watch The Bold and Beautiful with her like every day and I knew their characters very well. Um, you know, like I knew Rich Forrester and Forrester Creations and the fix. They're all in Los Angeles and it's like a fashion, um, they run a fashion company and it's kind of like the family turmoil around that fashion company. But yeah, I would watch those and I don't think I realized until maybe much later that I was so of how taken I was by them and maybe how formative they were for me as far as just kind of seeing people interact in ways that weren't like my little central Pennsylvania Irish Catholic little enclave. Um, yeah, and just the way and just the relationship to like sensuality was like that was my introduction to that kind of stuff. But at the time, it was just kind of like existed in the isolation of her house and maybe was separate from right. your social life, your aesthetics, your like. Yeah, no, I wasn't necessarily making. Like when I would draw, like I would do a lot of drawings and I would like have her like help me make stories and things like that. And I would do all the drawings for the stories. But they would be like cartoon characters and things, like not necessarily, um, you know, and like very maybe like agendered. Um, eventually, I started doing more drawings of like of women. Like when I was like going through puberty and stuff, I would like be making these like drawings because like that was my art when I was a kid. Like I would do drawings. I'd mostly like copy Disney Adventures magazines. And like comic, like those the strips of Disney cartoons, and like like make my own versions of them. Um, but then, so like characters like Jessica Rabbit, or when when kind of like because it's so interesting with cartoons, they're very I don't know, they're so male or something, or like the only way that you like make a cartoon character into a female cartoon character is to like put a bow on their heads. Yeah. You know, or like put uh, like high heels onto Minnie Mouse or whatever. And so, like when I would encounter women in cartoons that like were not that, I would be like so fascinated. And then, so, but then I wouldn't be able to like sit on my grandmother's counter and draw them. I would have to like. I felt very embarrassed to do it, so I would like do it in private. Mm -hmm. And even when you were drawing, it sounds like maybe there was some narrative aspect to your illustrations they were kind of comics or they had lines yeah yeah there would be like it'd be like illustrations to shorter stories or or even i would play with like some friends like my friend down the street where i play with my sister and we would do stuff and like this is where like say like in um peanut dreams where the the um 
characters come from, mm -hmm. the figurines. That's from my sister and I used to play, we call it Animal Town. And we would have this gigantic, and it's, I still have the container that like has my sister's like name scrolled on it when she was like five, right? The name on it, like I have that container and that's what all those characters are in. And we would like pour them out and then we'd like put them all into little families and we would like, like have this town, this town would kind of like carry on and there'd be like the cat family and like the dinosaur family and the dog family and whatever, whatever we had. And, and we would, yeah, make this little functioning society. <laughs> and that's, yeah. But then, so then all the figurines in Painted Dreams are those exact figures. Like I didn't buy them separately. Like they are the figures that my sister and I used to play Animal Town. When we were kids, and they all came from, you know, various like Toys R Us and whatever, but also like McDonald's and Burger King, you know, boxes and Happy Meals and things like that. Like that's the source of so many of them, mm -hmm. um, you know. And they have like Made in China scrawled on the bottom with like Donald Duck's foot and like that kind of shit. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm curious about more of like the ma materiality of. Um, the worlds you create for painted dreams and um, like kind of like the noticeable collections that are in those um, kind of dioramas or or mm -hmm. worlds. Um, I wonder how you. I think it's it said somewhere that you're inspired by um, like displays at thrift stores, and I've always notice those too how like mm -hmm. seasonal they are um but i wonder how you go about that type of collection and, and if it's a concept or a um an object that drives that mm -hmm. yeah yeah i say it's a combination or it's trying to like have as many it's trying to be a combination of like those figurines which I think like are stand-ins for fictional character. You know, like I would, I'd, I'd try to make the analog in Painted Dreams between those figurines, those like little Disney or whatever figurines with the soap opera characters that my grandmother is watching. And that she and I, like during those afternoons, like if I'm, if she's in one room watching soap operas and I'm in the other room with my sister, like, playing with these toys, like it's, we're kind of doing, we're kind of engaged in like similar activities of just kind of like moving and living vicariously through these kind of like fictions. Um, and so when I'm creating the tableaus, it's like a matter of getting like that kind of like fictional person element in with those. And then a lot of the products are all, um, Procter and Gamble related products, and so Procter and Gamble is the one who, like, originally funded soap operas. And so, like, that's you know, it wasn't like NBC or CBS or whatever. Like, it was originally like paid programming around household items, and it was like a way to sell household items to women. Um, and so, yeah. So if there's like Charmin toilet paper in the background, like it's there because that's like entangled in the soap opera world and kind of like inextricable to that world for me, 
um, like it's always tied to product and the moving of product and it's like creating this massive fictional world but it's like not <laughs> for some kind of like positive like thing or something it's like created around selling household products and like keeping women in their station or something along those lines yeah kind of along those lines do you feel like you were aware of either in your play or just in your perception of like the gender dynamics playing out in the soap operas or do you feel like it's like a later gaze I feel like it's coming back to it. I feel like I didn't maybe realize it at the time, or I also kind of maybe didn't even realize that I was taking this stuff in, and maybe none of the other boys in my Catholic middle school were. You know, like I didn't like that didn't maybe like hit me at the time. Um, yeah, it's kind of like only in hindsight that I. You know, when I started to think about the possibility of doing Pain and Dreams, like, that it kind of hit me as, like, wait a minute. I was exposed to this. I was exposed to, um, like, media targeted to, like, a mass female audience. And, like, I was exposed to that in ways that, like, few men are. And, like, had a, a deep empathy for that in ways that few men have. And it's really interesting when like very few men come to the screenings. I mean like some like friends of mine and stuff like that but like screenings I've had or painted dreams or like the workshops that I've done for Love Life. It's like predominantly queer people or women like female identified people. And when men do come they're just like I've never thought about soap operas in that way before. I've always just like dismissed them as whatever. And I was like, yeah, like that's the whole freaking point. Is that if this genre that's doing all the work that all of these other genres are, um, like I recently was doing, like it didn't, I didn't kind of finish it and fully come out, but I did this installation and I called it Kitchen Sink Drama, which is like this like, British kind of well-made play genre from like the 50s and 60s centered on um, kind of like it's like the birth of kind of like the angry young man stuff but it's all domestic dramas and so it's interesting to me that like okay this kitchen sink drama this angry young man like becomes like a big deal the man in the household struggle like in like Ugh, this house, I can't, you know, I'm struggling with my wife, I'm struggling with my parents, I'm struggling with whatever, and, like, that wasn't really a big thing before, and then, like, oh, whoa, it's suddenly a big deal when a man does it. But when all of these years and all, like, soap operas are happening, and um, Erna Phillips, who I talk about in Pain of Dreams a lot, kind of like the, the grandmother or godmother of soaps, like, she had already been doing this stuff, and it's, like, yeah, I don't know. And then, like just just looking at it and knowing that so many men don't see this aspect of it was like a way to, or a reason to dig into it. Um, maybe just briefly, um, 
if folks are listening who haven't seen Painted Dreams, oh would you God. mind describing it briefly? <laughs> sure. So no, it's true. That's true. <laughs> I realize we're referencing it without context. Right, right. All right. So go right now. Pause. Hit pause on the. <laughs> um, I have them on YouTube now. We'll see if they stay on YouTube for years upon years. But yeah, they're available. And they are. It's a video art essay, serial video art essay. Um, that kind of is a, about soap operas, but is also kind of a soap opera in its own right. Um, it quote scenes from The Bold and the Beautiful and the new season will quote from other others and yeah, it thinks about trans identity through maybe the lens of like looking at soap operas and what they do. Yeah. Um, what was Catholic middle school like and did you go to Catholic high school after yeah. that? Yeah, I went to Catholic school the whole way through, like kindergarten through high school. How was that? I mean, you know, Claire. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it's interesting because I wasn't very... I was rebellious in my own little way, but I kind of like went through the motions of a lot of things. Um, like I was an ultra boy, I was like involved in that kind of stuff, I I was kind of like recruited to be a priest at different periods of my life and then like felt guilt about like not wanting to do that. I was a Eucharistic minister in high school because they like asked the people, you know, I don't know, the people who were getting decent grades and like aren't assholes, they asked them if you wanted to be a Eucharistic minister, and I was like, okay. Um, you know, but it wasn't, I, th I think that Catholicism for me is more interesting to me now as ritual and as performance. And I think now, like, I use maybe, like, yoga as ritual, or I use, like, the watching of soaps and things like that, like at night before I go to bed. I talk about this in one of the Painted Dreams episodes. Um, as a way of grounding and a way of like returning and a way to be able to see one changing over time. Like once you kind of get into a ritual or something, like I've been doing yoga for a number of years now and I can, you know, it's like interesting to like, you don't see the change in a day or two, but if I look back to like what my body was like three years ago, there's significant change. Mm -hmm. And I think that's similar to things happening in soap operas, that like, you know, day to day, there's not much change, and people are like, oh, these things move so slow. How can people even watch these every day? Like, the plot is not like kicking like it is in like, you know, these kind of shorter series. But it's like about this kind of slow duration, and then I found that to be a very interesting metaphor for like trans identity too. That like there is no kind of like your uh, 
you know, you're one gender one day and then you wake up and you're the other gender or whatever the other day. It is inevitably a slow, you know, slow progress, slow move that has fits and starts and the plot may double back on itself and then move forward again or these sorts of things. And I feel like to find soap operas at a time when I was really grappling with trans identity, like, felt very right to me. And, like, the metaphor feels very, like, true and still does to me. When was that time that soap operas came back and that you were thinking about your trans identity at, at a beginning point for? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I started to feel it the most, I guess, maybe it's the end. Like, I mean, it was in my early 30s. Um, and kind of like being exposed to groups and you know, I was living in Western Massachusetts that I was not exposed to in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, of course. And I was not even exposed to in New York City. You know, like I was exposed to it, like, I'd be involved in, like, gay, male culture in all these kind of various ways um, through my 20s. Like, I was in a, a band, and, like, the big singer of the band, and um, his name is Kelvin, and he was, um, he's gay, and he was also, like, my roommate, and we also, like, had some, like, it was, like, there was a lot of things happening with that in my 20s, but it never felt like my group. Um, and then when I started to encounter um, a little bit more trans identity, I was like, I, I was very, I was just knocked off my, my whatever. You know, like I, I, was, I was just like, oh shit, like this is a possibility that I like hadn't, hadn't been able to like, hadn't been presented to me in any way. Um, that when it was, I kind of like couldn't go back. I guess. After high school, did you come to New York? Um, I was at Hofstra on Long Island, mm. and I did my undergrad there. And I did it in, I think because I was scared to move to New, directly to New York City. You know, I mean, it's really interesting now. Like, I was looking at NYU, and I ended up not applying, and I looked at Bard, and I ended up not applying because I was like, oh, these places are not me. Like, I'm this, like, milk toast, middle of the road, vanilla person. <laughs> um, and I, I was like, I need something that's, like, close to New York City, but I don't need these kind of things. And what's really fascinating now is, like, when I, I taught this, like, high school program in London, and they were, like, applying to schools, and they were, like, asking me where I went, and they're, like, oh, you probably went to NYU or Bar or, like, one of these places. And so it's, like, very interesting how it kind of, like, doubled back. But, yeah. Um, sorry, I think I lost the, the thread. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> um, so you're living in Long Island. Yeah. During your undergrad. Yeah. And then after that, did you... Yeah, then I came to the city. Then you came to the city. Yeah. What um, year was that? In 2006. I moved to New York. 
Um, yeah, and I lived with some people. I lived with a lot of actors, and so. Were you doing theater at the time? I went to a few auditions, and I was kind of like, this is not for me. And I just kind of was doing my own writing, but not really kind of going anywhere with it. Or I would publish little short stories here and there. I had this like ghostwriting project I did for a minute. And um, yeah, and I just felt kind of like a voyeur on my like active friends with these like big personalities and I would just kind of like go out with them and like just kind of take take it all in. Where would you go out in 2006? <laughs> <laughs> um, like I lived in I lived in uh, like Harlem at the time so we would often go out in like Midtown and or like my friend Mark knew people and we would go to like these clubs you know, like these like Chelsea clubs and stuff, and and then sometimes I would go to like Greenpoint and like these different kind of like larger queer dance parties with my friend Mike um, at different points. So yeah, kind of a few different places, and then I was eventually like, "What the hell am I doing with all these actors on the you know Upper West Side? I gotta go to Brooklyn." And so then I flew to Brooklyn started to like change from there and I got more into poetry and yeah I was in a band for a little bit and then <laughs> oh my god I don't even wanna everyone laughs at the band title the argyle effect oh <laughs> what kind of music with the argyle effect the argyle effect was like a mix of like like the decemberists and <laughs> um, like Jack White or like bluesy kind of stuff. Um, we were compared to Panic at the Disco, um, and I think that was because my and my my friend my one friend would say we were, sounded like Andrew Lloyd Webber, and, and I was like, "What do you mean? I'm not writing these Andrew Lloyd Webber songs." But like my friend Kelvin would sing them, and he would be this like big Freddie Mercury style personality, and I would write these like weird story songs with like. Klezmer guitar riffs, and so it was just like such a like cacophonous, wild mix of shit. Um, <laughs> but we did it for a few years, and it was like my like that was my creative outlet before I started getting more into poetry, and that was my formative outlet before I started getting back into theater and film school. So it had its own time. Was there a concept that the Argyle effect was named after that you could come up with, or was it? Just oh, I would love, it. Claire. I would love to have this brilliant uh, thing that it was. It was. I mean, Calvin and Gary came up with it, and I, I didn't, I didn't really like it, and I vetoed it, but it, we we stuck with it. And so, yeah, I wish I could, um, you know, have a have a thing for you. But it, I mean, what was what it came, ended up being was like I would. Gary and I would write these songs, then they would all be like characters. And so, yeah, and, they, and even from like different eras or different, or there's like one song that's from the perspective of, that I wrote, there's like, oh my God, it's like a perspective of like someone who like lives in central Pennsylvania who like, 
only is like very a man who's very lonely and only goes to like porn stores and like purchases and is like purchases these videos or just watches these videos and has this deep relationship to like this woman Nancy like the song is called Nancy and then there's like a moment where it like flips and like he talks to Nancy mm-hmm. in the bridge and like like there's like weird yeah there's like narrative. a lot of weird narrative stuff happening and yeah me writing from like some of the later stuff that we don't have recorded was like me writing from the perspective of women and like different that like if I couldn't have those recorded and go back to them, it would be very interesting. Um, but yeah. And then you you said that you returned um, or started focusing more on poetry and performance yeah. at some point. Um, yeah. Did you have a community that kind of helped feed that or facilitate that at the time? Yeah, I met um, my friend Gabe. And a few other people, um, we would go to poetry readings a lot. And so I feel like once that, and I started taking workshops at the Poetry Project, and that really started to open up me getting into dance and getting into more avant-garde work. And I was working as a stagehand at the time um, on fashion and fancy parties and, like, avant-garde dance shows and stuff like that. And so I worked at Peak Performances, which is in Montclair, New Jersey, but like the person who runs it is um, like worked with Philip Glass on Einstein on the Beach and stuff and like brings kind of like avant-garde stuff from all over the world to there. And so like I'd be backstage working on that. And so that time period, like before I went back to MFA, like was very influential to my aesthetic, just to, like me sitting backstage and or like, I'd be, like, in these Brex shows where, like, I'm, like, moving a television around on stage for half an hour, um, but I'm also just, like, getting this Brex show, like, deep into my brain or, like, all these kind of... This kind of genre stuff that I do in Painted Dreams and that I've done in live performance um, comes from, like, being exposed to things during that time period. And... So it's like interesting because I feel like I come from a place like through that job I was exposed to live performance in a way that many people who like write lyric essays are not. And so it's interesting when I like am able to bridge these two things or like there's some people doing these kind of things of performance and then this and they don't meet, but like I am a person who meets them. Mm-hmm. And so they can kind of like influence each other. What were... Um what were some spaces that some of that, uh, some of the readings were happening or some of the performances were happening? Sounds like there was maybe like a separate world that the, the performances that you were exposed to through your job were happening in. Yeah. Um, but I guess either, either one. Um, and then, so like, where were those? Yeah. Like the, those, those kind of venues? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, at the time, it was mostly like it was at peak performances, but then eventually I see things at BAM and at Brishnikov Arts Center and at Abrams Arts Center and um, PS122 before it was, like now it's performance space, but it was PS122 and um, La Mama and 
like a lot of these dance space. So like a lot of these downtown, I started to like realize, because like in my early 20s, I lived with all those actors that wanted to be on Broadway. And some of them did end up on Broadway, but like that was kind of never my thing. And so then when I started to be exposed to downtown theater work, yeah, a lot of game stuff changed. And like at this point, I am kind of a member I'm a tangential member of that community, where at the time I was just like a stagehand in that community, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, What kind of work were you making at that time? And did that like lead to you wanting to go back to school? Yeah, I feel like I I was writing poems. Or I was writing kind of like very short fictions. Um, when I kind of stopped with the bands, like that all kind of just started going into just text. And, but also I would be reading it in like fairly performative ways. Or I'd be like, how can I put music to this? Or how can I, you know, and like slowly that kind of fell away. But then, I don't know, New York is very tough. I felt that I could, there was so much performance happening that I couldn't really there wasn't space for me to do it or something, or I had a lot of imposter syndrome or something like that, you know? And so it really wasn't until I left to go to Western Massachusetts that I kind of like rediscovered just like doing performance because I like really enjoyed doing it. And the stakes were so low, like in a positive way, you know, like here I'd be like, oh my God, I need to like rent a space. I need to like, you know, I need to like, do it downtown and like get a certain amount of asses in the seats and you do all these kind of things and like but like in western mass like i didn't have to do that and there was a group of the connecticut river valley poets theater um that my friend ish um started running and there was with a bunch of other people like um her husband greg and stella corso who ended up being a collaborator in a lot of my other things um and then a bunch of other people and i kind of joined that theater club poetry theater club for a while um and then yeah the performance stuff started to happen um what were some of the early performances that you were imagining i mean the first thing that i directed the first like full-scale thing i directed was um called fast five and it's a verbatim theater piece which like verbatim theater is like, if it's like using found text. So I was also very into conceptual poetry, you know, like yet yeah, now it's, conceptual poetry is very fraught. But at the time I was interested in what it meant to quote in mass. And, and I was very interested in theater groups like Elevator Repair Service and Nature Theater of Oklahoma and people who were kind of taking like elevator repair service would take um, transcripts from the court cases or they take the Great Gatsby and like stage it like that exact text or Nature Theater of Oklahoma would take phone calls or like recordings like this and they just verbatim stage like this conversation or whatever like that and so I got really interested in that kind of stuff and I was recording people and I made this perform this script that was Excerpts from the Fast and the Furious, Fast Five, 
And then the other half of it was pieces of Fast Five that existed on the internet in various forms. So reviews of Fast Five or these kind of like um, parental things where like they like give a rating as to like how like this then engages, you know, thanks for your children. It's like very Christian or something. And like I would like take text from there and put that in the show. Or like and and I um, cross gender cast like not every role but like a, a few of the roles so that um, like my friend Ish um, she was in the role of Vin Diesel like she is the star of you know like of masculinity like um, and so yeah so that's <laughs> so that's the first thing that I did and and so then that became really. And people liked it, like, and, and really came out. Uh, yeah, did you, were you in Western Mass then, or? What year was that? Sort of been in, like, 2014, 2015. Mm-hmm. Like, we did it, we did it two times, but it came back and did it a second time, because people were so into it. And then we came down here and did it at Dixon Place. Um, but, yeah, I don't know, we're just, like, it's a bunch of <laughs> poets you know, and it's like, yeah. And there's these like car scenes where I was like choreographing dance routines of people in wheelchairs, but they're actually like cars. And, you know, so we're like blasting this music and they're doing these wild dance routines you, you can't see, but I'm like rotating my hands around in uh, various ways to indicate the choreography yeah, um, <laughs> to you listening at home. Um, but yeah, so that was like my inroad into, that was the first step for a lot of things. Like that was a very interesting move into, because that show is kind of like about large consumer pop, you know, and, and trying to approach that from a small scale. And it's also about like gender representation in those films. And Fast and the Furious is a soap opera. There's like eight or nine of them at this point, and they carry on and they like kind of move through. It's all around the family, just like soap operas are. It's just they just have cars instead of fashion houses. Right? They're just doing these other sorts of things, but there's like people who get amnesia. There's people who die and come back. Like all the tropes of soap operas also exist in the Fast and the Furious franchise. Um, <laughs> done. <laughs> That's it. Um, I feel like fashion has come up. Um, hmm. in these different, uh, in the job that you had, in the soaps, in the Fast and Furious, and I wonder about just, like, how fashion has, um, been a, been a world for you, or, um, Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that... Clothing, I'll start with it, like, I, 
when I was working for on these fashion shows, um, like I would show up in like my regular, my like what I would want to wear, you know, in, in my twenties, and they'd be like, "Oh, just come on in," and then I'd like change into the clothes that I would like wear to like work and hang lights, and then it was like, "What are you? Wait, what are you doing here?" And I'm like, um, "I'm here to hang the lights," and and I think it's very interesting to me how one wearing different clothing um, completely changes how, I mean, this is very simplistic, right? But like how the clothing that you wear completely influences how people take you in. Um, And because I've run the gamut of, um, you know, ways that I've dressed across the years um, and kind of never when I would be in middle school and high school, like, never really liked my clothing or never, like, felt like that I was always, like, very skinny and I, like, would wear these, like, big, like, big jeans and big overblown shirts or whatever and and just kind of never would try to, like, hide my body and was always very, um, yeah, just very, either my body would completely disappear or I would, like, really load that and, like, want to, like, just cover it up in whatever form. Um, and I think that a very important part, or, like, one of the inroads, and I think I talk about this in, in Love Life, to show the intro what Love Life is. Um, don't worry about it. Okay. Um, I talk about like thinking about clothing as like one aspect of femininity that I am very interested in. And it's just the freedom to be able to wear whatever, um, whatever you want on a given day. And I feel that clothing for men only runs, uh, it's a very narrow um, gamut of possibility, whereas clothing that is like the women's section of the store um, has so many options available to one. And I would often feel so, um, yeah, like claustrophobic in my options and then when I would venture outside of those options, then I would be like perceived as, you know, whatever, I'm gay, I'm a feminine, you know, like, and I've kind of dealt with that in all sorts of ways throughout, throughout the years. Um, and so it's like clothing then became the way to hide that side of myself, right? And so then eventually I'm just like, I'm sick of doing that you know like I don't want to disappear into I don't know fucking flannel and shit like now I don't touch flannel like (laughs) don't get a shit anywhere near me yeah (laughs) 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 but if people want to wear flannel they can wear flannel you know but it's just not it doesn't express me or I think that Growing up going to malls a lot 
And I remember going like shopping with my mom and like hiding amongst the women's dresses and stuff. Like there would be like a ring of them at JCPenney's or whatever, and I would like crawl underneath and like sit in the middle of them when I was like super young and like feel the different textures and whatever when I'm inside of there. And like my mom would be like, Patrick, where are you? And I'm like, I'm here. Like, <laughs> but like that's what I wanted to do when I was in JCPenney's. Um, and so, yeah, and I think I like put that down in many, many ways for a number of years. Um, until I like slowly, slowly allowed myself to turn it up until like a floodgate opened and it was just like now, you know, the majority of my um, clothing would be is technically I mean that that whole that whole thing is very fascinating to me. Like there's a line in Peter Dreams where I talk about like the difference between male and female clothing and it's like did the shirts just button on the left versus the right? And and I, it's, it's just so fucking ridiculous to me that... <laughs> <laughs> like, that subtle, subtle choice and, and, like, just seems to be, like, the most perfect metaphor for the, the ridiculousness of the line, you know, the artificial line between genders and... and and, and clothing, and why certain clothing like must be for certain people and not for others. Um, going back to Western Mass a little bit, was that the space that you um, had more queer community and trans community? I mean, I think it, it started with like... Um, Chelsea, who I was dating at the time, um, Chelsea Hoke, she and a few other women um, had this group called Where We Stumble. And part of that group, like that group was kind of, we had this like reading group. And the reading group was kind of around rape culture and around gender and around kind of all interesting, like, and then it just kind of ballooned to like a whole intersectionality, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I think that some of those, the, like, the conversations in that group were some of the things that, like, cracked me in a way that I had not been before. Um, and then, yeah, I feel like the Western Mass is smaller in a way, and in a way that I, I started... I don't know, like this is kind of like, I was just hanging out with lesbians more. And <laughs> and there was one night when we went to my friend Laura's house and like did this like sappho reading and stuff. And it's like, I was the only, you know, like I was, I identified as Patrick then or whatever. And so like, I was the only like male at this sappho reading, but like felt great. And, and I think that more and more I needed communities that were slowly and slowly queerer or else I kind of felt um, out of place. And, and so I like slowly created that in, in Massachusetts and, and tried to cultivate that through running different like 
lecture series and, and doing hosting events and casting queer friends and various projects. And yeah. What was it like to decide to leave Western Mass and come back to New York? Um, I mean, it was tough, but I feel like it was also like time. Um, like I'm so thankful for that place, and I feel like it allowed me the space that I think New York never afforded me in my twenties to like have a lot of lone contemplation time and like exploration time and like making all these projects that like pushed me into the depths of some of these things. Um, where in New York, I feel like it's tougher to make these kind of things, but I did feel like I needed to, I don't know, some of this like downtown theater stuff where I, w I was like, I need to like be a member of like the New York performing queer community. I need to like, you know, like I need that, I need that kind of challenge. And, and so that's what drew me to come down here. Um, and yeah, and I feel like a little bit of that is is happening. It's tougher to make work here, but um, you know, those inroads are happening. And um, yeah. What are some of the things that um, you're thinking about making, um, collaborating with other people, or? I mean, yeah, the two biggest things that are happening right now are I'm working on, um, my friend Jess is, I was in Jess's show at Dixon Place um, in August, and then Jess is staging another, um, Jess Barbagallo. Jess is directing a show at NYU right now, and I'm making the sets for it. But it's like based on um, Beaches with Bette Midler. Or like that's kind of central to the plot of it, and uh, yeah, Jess and I have a lot in common with thinking about soaps or thinking about like '80s and '90s um, television culture and stuff. And so, yeah, so we're kind of working on that together. And then I'm trying to do *Pain of Dreams* season three, and I have the script done, and I have a lot of things shot for it, and you know, 2020. <laughs> yeah. Um, where, where do you live? What part of the city do you live in? Um, I'm in Bushwick right now. And yeah, I like Bushwick. I'm pretty far out and it's pretty, it's pretty chill out there. Um, which is nice. I used to live in Bed-Stuy, um, which is a little more cacophonous. I've lived in so many different neighborhoods in Brooklyn over the years. Um, but yeah, like deep bushwick is nice and chill. It feels good right now. What do you do for jobs right now? For some of it is like creative work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have some money coming in for like different little shows and workshops and things that I do. And then I, I teach um, at two different places right now. At, at Hofstra on Long Island, and at Hunter on the Upper East Side. Kind of a mix of uh, essay writing and 
creative nonfiction and arts appreciation stuff. Like I have a class where I take students to see theater and to museums and stuff like that, and we talk about it. So, how was it being back at your undergrad? Oh, it's very, it's very funny. (laughs) (laughs) Has it changed? I think it has. I mean, yeah, like it has and it hasn't. I mean. I don't think it's changed all that much. And so then it's interesting just me and how much I've changed. Right? Or something, or, or how much of a fish out of water I felt at the time there. And that I've like somehow found my way back there. And this other, you know, and I'm like teaching the version of me that was showing up there at age 18 or whatever. Like, I'm now teaching, like, these classes with freshmen. So, like, that's kind of, like, a little bit of a mindfuck. And so I'm hoping that I'm, like, pushing them into... (laughs) Pushing them to more difficult places faster than I was pushed. Mm -hmm. But... Um, I'm thinking a little bit about love life and about romance novels and about um, kind of like love in quotes as a theme that runs through your work Um, Mm -hmm. and I'm not really sure like what my question is around it but I wonder like what do you love how do you think about love where does love exist in your life right now? Oh my goodness, Claire. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would say I'll start with love life and that I think it's grounded in, like that's another work that's grounded in my grandmother and grounded in like her, like she would literally sit um, watching the soap, and then when the commercial would come on for Charmin toilet paper or whatever, dishwasher detergent, um, would like open up the Daniel Steele book on her lap and like read that for three minutes, and then the soap opera comes back on and she closes it and she's watching that. Like she is just um, consuming those sort of narratives at a rate that is um, mind boggling to me. And a huge portion of the page count of Love Life is just the list that my grandfather has kept of all the romance novels that she has read. And so he goes and to the library for her and will pick out books and so to make sure that he doesn't pick get repeats, he keeps the list in his car, in his Buick. Um, they're both they're both over ninety at this point, um, and this still this still happens. You know, he still goes to the library and gets books out for her, and you know, but yeah, I mean, she's just read so like you know thousands, or you have to look at the book to see it, see the list. Um, so I'm like, what is the accumulation of taking in all of this? And I think that I'm interested in what that is for her and for you know, women from central Pennsylvania, or, like, I found a study about, like, women in Ohio, but I thought that that's 
pretty close to central Pennsylvanian women, and so I, you know, for me, it's like a direct analog to her. And yeah, I was interested in the effect of those narratives on people over time. And I say for me, I'm a little bit like a step removed from it or something when, when I was writing that book. I was writing it from a more like anthropological remove and was more fat was just as fascinated by the ways in which like consumer culture shows up in those books and like that the only proper nouns are the names of like Bergdorf Goodman and Chanel and whatever. Like that those are the only things that like get actual um, you know, they'll go see a movie but they won't tell you the title of the movie. They'll go do whatever, but they don't tell. Like, the only specific, only specificity is in clothing, and and so I'm in, I was interested also in how that gets wrapped up into love. I think that the next pain of dreams is going to be about love more directly, and maybe it would be more personal and how I look at these soaps. Because I now, I feel like maybe when I started some of these projects, I wasn't taking in soaps, of course, as much as I love as I am now. And so the next phase of this is kind of looking at how the effect it's had on me. And my move from kind of like laughing at these things in some way to seeing how much of a hopeless romantic I actually am and like haven't really faced in various ways, you know, or I've like really put away. Um, what's really weird to me now, um, because I'm so like love skeptical, is like I my first girlfriend that I really had, like I I wouldn't do like like Valentine's Day I'd, like put the rose petals out and like all that kind of shit like on my like basement at my parents' house. And like like I was so like, okay, this is what I I watched a few rom coms. This is how it goes. Like I watched like the notebook with like that first girlfriend and like stuff like that. I was like, okay, I'm Ryan Gosling. She, you know <laughs> this is what I have to do. And and I feel like I learned yeah, I just take so many of my cues for behavior in so many ways from media consumption. And and sometimes I feel like at this point I'm a step removed from that, and then maybe I'm actually not. And maybe that skepticism, or maybe that, that person who put those rose petals down is still in me in these various ways. But I think I have a very, a richer version now of what love is and whether that's romantic love or whether that's more kind of queer community love. I feel like that's, that definition for me has really changed in the last few years. What is your, I feel like 
this is maybe related to your community, but what is your support system like in New York? What is your community like in New York? Hmm. I mean, I have I have a partner right now, and I have yeah various friend groups that are kind of like scattered about in various ways. Um, and I feel that being back here for like a year and a half, like I'm getting, I'm getting back to the point that I was in like Western Massachusetts where I like have people who I think are really important to me and stuff like that. Like it is like a little, a little year of transition. And now it feels like that kind of stuff is like feeling richer again. Um, but yeah, and I think that romantic love has been a part of that. I mean, it's, it's like it's very weird to publish a book called Love Life and write it when I wasn't really dating anyone. <laughs> and was very like I would I wrote Love Life when I just got back to to New York and I would be riding the train out to like the Long Island Railroad out to teach at Hofstra and I would just read Daniel Steele on my commute. You know, like a real um, <laughs> um whatever, I don't I don't even know. Um you know like I would, I think I said this in Love Life, like, I would be reading it and then like a bunch of people would get on the train who are all going to like a ranger for like a Islanders game because I don't even know. Um, like all these like men in hockey jerseys and they'd like surround me and I'd like be reading my little Daniel Steele um, book like while the like cacophony of them like drinking beers out of paper bags and wearing jerseys is like surrounding me. Um, yeah. Oh. Right. And I'm in my mm-hmm, I'm in my Daniel Steele like yeah, and it's a cloak, but it's in here. <laughs> I'm pointing to my head. <laughs> yeah. Um, you're talking about, uh, like, consumer culture a lot and how, I mean, how that relates to, like, media consumption as well as the consumption of products that these... Um, media sources are advertising to us and like increasingly so mm-hmm. increasingly like specifically so yeah. um i guess i wonder like how your work maybe is in conversation with um like other uh things that are happening right now in the world or like how you think about yourself as like a uh, political Mm. person Uh, I don't know if you think of yourself as a political person no no certainly Um, I mean I think it's interesting slowly over the course of a few years um, and like feeling more comfortable with transness and like being and like being more comfortable with like saying that that's me and and I I think that um, like Justin Vivian Bond says something I saw I saw them at Joe's pub and they said something about like like just walking around in a 
like in a trans body and, and maybe not in New York City, but, but yes, still in New York City, um, like as its own kind of political statement. And, and I feel like even walking around and like wearing a skirt and like even like the smallest kind of little things, right? Like I just get eyes in a way or I'm, I'm just, yeah, like be, feel like a little lightning rod on the street sometimes in various neighborhoods and in various contexts. Um, and I think that I try to bridge like these kind of queer communities with these kind of mainstream straight communities and, and kind of see how they speak to each other or like I it really depends on like where my where my audience like who my audience is. I try to really make work that ideally, like I don't know, like my friend Stella like gave her sister who like reads romance novels. Like she was talking about my book, and like her sister like bought my book and like read it. And so like people who do not have a a take in these kind of things, or, or the people in central Pennsylvania, or people in, you know, I don't know, I, I, one of the wildest experiences I had was going up to a dance performance in like rural Maine, and it was, a, I was doing this performance called The Flag We Love, it was like a one-person show, and I was doing this like, when I started to use they, them pronouns, I was like performing this, The Flag We Love, and there's a moment in it when I like put like red, white, and blue makeup on on stage, right? Stripped down to just like red, white, and blue, like bikini bottom and, and like these kinds of things. And I think that I, yeah, feel like it's very powerful to like know that someone who has this background of coming from these kind of like central Pennsylvania, um, roots that are now, you know, like, that now kind of gets full, and, like, the military stuff, and, like, roots that kind of, like, get folded into the right at this point, and, um, I mean, my, my dad was more to the right when I was growing up, but has now kind of, sh has now shifted over the course of a number of years, and, like, having myself and my sister as his children, you know, has like slowly shifted. But a lot of people in Harrisburg are still, you know, it's tough. Yeah. When I go to like restaurants and stuff with them, my dad is, is like very protective of me or like doesn't want people. He's like, I see people looking at you and that makes me uncomfortable. And I'm like, yeah, and what we're like navigating how to do that. Um, but I think, and how does that relate to mainstream stuff? Yeah, like I think that I've gotten some of, like, yes, it's been in real life models for womanhood, of course. Um, and a lot of it has come from television shows and media and all these different ways. And I feel that like that's where I got a lot of models for things that I like kind of still perform. 
has your grandmother or your has your family read your book? Um, my mom, my mom has. Um, my sister is like down with my work and like reads stuff. Um, other than that, not really, or I don't really, I don't really know. Um, like a few of my cousins like follow me on Instagram and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it's not something that I like talk a whole lot about at Christmas or something. <laughs> or it's like when I go home for Christmas, it's like toning it, you know. And and I think that I'm, I don't know. We'll see what happens this year. Like there's, yeah. As things start to, as things continue to shift. Where does your sister live? She lives in New Hampshire. Uh, she went, she got a grad degree at the University of New Hampshire. So I've been up there a few times. I had her. She was down here not too long ago. I had to see her. Um, but yeah, she's very, she's very supportive of of this of transness, and we have a lot of great conversations about the kind of media stuff that that I use in my work. And, you know, she consumed a lot of the same stuff as me. Or we would, we'd be watching a lot of this MTV together, mm-hmm. afternoon upon afternoon upon afternoon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What were some of your favorite um, videos on MTV? <laughs> oh my god. Um, so like call to mind particular ones? Hmm. Or yeah. songs. Right. No, I mean, I, I just think of the primary... It's like I don't even think about what I like, and I, I think that's for my work too, like I actually don't make work about things that I actually like. I, I feel like I find things that I I think are worthy of exploring and that I kind of want to know more about and dig into them. And so even like music videos from that time period, it's like, yeah, I don't know, like what did I like the most back then? Like, Green Day, Blue Coin 82, and like those sorts of things. But then, you know, equally into, I don't know, Mariah Carey and Ricky Martin, <laughs> or Ace of Base, or the Spice Girls, or, it, like, and, and I think that MTV was a place that I could like all of these things. I feel like eventually it kind of got beaten out of me to like in later high school when I was like, oh, okay, I'm gonna like play guitar and maybe do these other kind of like I need to find a way to put this kind of like femininity that people see in me because I was like in the drama and you know, all the but like um, I was in all the plays and I made like the television show at my like my senior year I was the host of like the television <laughs> show at my um, high school these kinds of things and so yeah and I mean I would bring like these contemporary references in 
but I feel like there's a point where I was like, oh, I need to like Radiohead. I need to like these kinds of things in order to project the kind of person that people like want me to be rather than like I'm equally interested in Radiohead and the Spice Girls. <laughs> you know, which is like something of, of course at this point like totally chill the same. But like when I was like 16 or 17, I had to like start putting the Spice Girls and Alanis Morissette or whoever, you know, I had to like put that away and just like this other kind of stuff. Yeah. Be legible and pass. <laughs> right, right. You know, but I was also like the, the kid in middle school who would like show up to the dance and would know the words to every single song. You know, like I could rap Mace's part and like no money, no problems, or something, and like that's probably still in my brain, um, <laughs> you know. Or I could sing you like "Jagged Little Pill" front to back, you know. Like it's, yeah, um, it's so. It's been so much. It's I don't know. I don't really have any other languages. It's one of my biggest regrets because I think all the space is filled up with. Um, pop songs, lyrics, and <laughs> all of that for so long. But I feel like that's really where I found art, and that's like where, that's the visuals for a lot of poetry and stuff. It's just like, it's music videos. Like, I didn't go to an art museum until I was like 22, 23. Like, music videos were that place to find that stuff. Well, I mean, is there anything else you want to, any other places you want to go? Anything else that's on your mind? Oh my goodness, Claire. Um, I don't know, I think that's what I've, I think that's what I've got. Beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. This is really great. Mm -hmm.